regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where we hold long-form and in-depth conversation with data and AI practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Tom Brackett, who is the co-founder and CEO of Masterful AI, the training platform for computer vision that helps developers build models faster and with much less labeling. He is a former venture capitalist and invested in enterprise software and AI machine learning at Anderson's Horowitz. Prior to VC, he held product management roles at Wildfire, which was acquired by Google, YouTube, and Autodesk. He began his AI and ML journey at MIT and started his career as an engineer at Silicon Graphics. Tom lives in the Bay Area with his wife and daughter and loves going fast, whether on a modern bike or flying racing drones. So yeah, Tom, welcome to the show. James, thanks so much for having me. Fabulous. While doing the homework for our conversation, I found out that you are originally from one host town in upstate New York. And as a teenager, you always loved tinkering around building things and earned the name Technical Tom in elementary school. Can you share a bit about some of these formative experiences of your upbringing? Sure. Yeah, I'm from a small town in the Hudson River Valley, kind of on the outer edge of the New York City, you know, sphere of influence. And for me, I always was interested in, you know, kind of disassembling things, seeing how things work. It was interesting because IBM's headquarters was a couple hours south, and there's people in our area who work for IBM, but my parents didn't. My dad sold advertising for a newspaper, and my mom was a secretary. So I was uh, kind of the only person around who, who was kind of like digging into this stuff around computers. And, and also in the early days, I loved uh, things that um, are a little odd now. Like I love model airplanes, and I spent, you know, hours researching different parts and components, kind of, you know, RC planes that you could fly. And I spent a couple of years building one in my basement, but then there's nowhere around where I could fly it. And so I would read up on the stuff and I built, you know, the components, the engine, the electrical system, the, you know, the, the airframe and all that. But it wasn't until years later where I finally had a friend who was able to take me to his farm and, you know, was able to help me get it in the air. I guess uh, I learned a lot of patience to like see a project through and kind of like see how things work and research it. Uh, even if I couldn't do it, I would imagine Similar with scuba diving. I was fascinated with scuba diving, even though I lived, you know, hundreds of miles from the ocean. I subscribed to Scuba Diver magazine for like five years through like elementary and junior high school. And I learned everything there was possibly to know about scuba diving and all the gear and how it worked. But I didn't get to go scuba diving until uh, I went to college and I first went scuba diving in Boston Harbor as part Mm -hmm. of a PE class at MIT. But yeah, I always wanted to know how things worked. And I was willing to, I guess, kind of like, go through it in my mind. And even if I couldn't do it firsthand, and it was satisfying later in life to finally do some things I had imagined. Yeah. Thanks for sharing a little bit of the details, the context of how you cultivate that interest in tinkering with things 
problem solving and, and diving into even very niche areas of uh, interest. You did mention a bit about you going to MIT for school. And this is, I believe, in the mid-1990s, and you went to MIT to study computer science. You did your undergrad degree there, and you actually also completed your master thesis there in computer vision, and you also published a variety of papers in artificial intelligence journals. So my question is twofold. First, how could you describe your overall educational experience at MIT? And then secondly, can you also briefly walk through the research work that you have done there? Yeah, I felt very, very lucky to get to go to MIT. That was kind of like my dream, and it was rare for people from my school to kind of leave town and do that kind of thing. I really appreciated it. MIT didn't really care where you came from, and they cared that you were really passionate about building things, you know, and inventing things. And I felt MIT was also like a place where everybody kind of suffered together. <laughs> so if you, if you didn't come in humble, you quickly got humbled. You know, it really helped people bond. And, and for me, I just love that people were like setting aside a lot of things about themselves and more about like, what is this thing I want to solve? This problem I want to solve, this thing I want to build, how am I going to change the world with it? I mean, it's very pure. I really enjoy that part of MIT. And on the research side, yeah, I was part of the MIT AI lab. Now it's called CSAIL for computer science AI lab. But back then it was our you know, own building and things. It used to sit right next to a robot called COG, which was Rodney Brooks. If you've heard of him, he's now gone to build a few companies. I sat on the ninth floor of this lab next to COG, which is this famous robot. But my specialty was computer vision. And back then, I was involved in making a number of innovations to use statistics, like classical computer vision, to do object recognition, like detecting faces and cars and so on. And then the early days of deep learning. It was the early days of, well, even before deep learning, it was neural networks. And that was where uh, I was working on some techniques that could understand images at different resolutions. And one of the cool things we did was using uh, texture analysis. So like texture, like kind of the patterns rather than the structure in an image. And one of my papers was about a, basically a synthetic generation of faces mm. using technique. And so the early paper showed these really creepy looking Frankenstein faces where it would composite like features from different faces into one new face. Uh, and today this is done very well with things like GANs, you know, generative adversarial networks. They look beautiful and real, but uh, my early version was more of the Frankenstein version. But those were very formative years for me, just understanding how to help computers understand the world through vision, which I think is the highest bandwidth way of digitizing the world and like helping machines understand. And so that's been a theme throughout my life to say, how do we make this computer vision stuff really work for many more people in many more industries? And that's what led me to start Masterful AI in the, in the last couple of years and what we're working on now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious... So you study computer science and then you specialize in computer vision at MIT, right? So there's a few other areas of CS that you could also probably study. Why did you hone in AI in general and vision in specific? First of AI, I think for me, understanding who we are, like why, who are we as human beings and how does our mind work was just a fundamental question, a fundamental mystery, which was really engaging for me and really drew me in. And I think in some ways, I also wanted to take an action. I wanted to be able to build something, not just study and observe, but actually like take action and build and, and test. And, and that's where computer science and specifically AI was that vehicle to be able to say, let's have a thesis about how the mind works and let's try to rebuild it and see if we were right or wrong. And, and also um, there was the side effects, kind of the positive externalities. Maybe we can help people overcome neurological diseases if we can understand more about how the brain works. And in fact, I was planning to continue 
on the research side at MIT and do a, a PhD in computational neurobiology. And I deferred on that program and decided to go to Silicon Valley, which led me to do other things. But for uh, a period of time, I thought, yeah, let's even go further into like the wetware, you know, how the brain works and study the brain and then rather than the silicon first. And I still think there's so many mysteries to solve around the human brain. And I hope we get even further with the advances in biology in the recent times. Yeah, thanks for providing a little bit of context and that interest. So you mentioned briefly that instead of pursuing the research part, you go to Silicon Valley and more specifically, your first job out of school is a software engineering role at Silicon Graphics, building high-performance visualization system. What was the most valuable lesson that you have learned from that job? Yeah, just some quick context. So Silicon Graphics or SGI was like the place to be at the time, kind of like, in my view, the top engineers, and they're building both hardware and software and systems. And they're all about performance. Like they were the machines at the time that made like the graphics for Jurassic Park and like Terminator 2 and all this stuff. And so it was all about how do you get the, like the best performance, the best quality visuals. I learned the lesson of like to really wring the most performance out of a system, you really do have to get into the details. And so I was working with people who were designing uh, compilers, right, to compile code more efficiently, designing chips and like the instruction set for chips to be able to execute the code more efficiently and quickly. And parallel systems where I focused on helping make kind of an early version of the metaverse, where it's like an online design space for people to collaborate. So it had to be like almost real time and work across even slower connections back then. So I think bottom line, the lesson of like, you got to get into the weeds. You can't just rely on the abstraction layer you're sitting on mm -hmm. as a developer. And you really got to say, well, how does it work under the hood and take a systems view? It's important mm -hmm. to get the performance, you know, the best performance out of I think technical systems, but also even in some cases, people systems, because it's sometimes, you know, God is in the details and, and you got to understand those to make something really work well. Thanks for providing some details on that engineering work that you do. And then just another note on that, prior to this job, you spent most of the time in the East Coast, right? And then this is a move to Silicon Valley during sort of the dot-com era. How is that transition for you in terms of just working style and the vitalism of the Valley? Yeah, I mean, I, I um, was fortunate to be in the Valley, you know, and I thought then, I think now it's still kind of like this Renaissance period, or it's like the Medici's, you know, back in the, whatever, the 1500s, 1600s. Now it's the time where Silicon Valley, and now the concept of Silicon Valley, not just the place, is just changing the world, you know, forever. And I, um, I thought there was excitement, you know, being here on the ground, you know, in the early 2000s of like, wow, we're really changing how life works in many dimensions. And and there was just on the West Coast, I think, a bit more openness to, you know, tearing up the old plan and trying something new and not being afraid of failing if it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. In some ways, you know, cases like that's kind of earning your stripes. So that was uh, felt like a different mindset to me than on the East Coast, where it was a bit more like what's worked in the past. It's improve upon, you know, what's already there. That was one of the things that struck me when I came out to the West Coast. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting the shipping mindset in between the East Coast and the West Coast. So in the early 2000s, you spent about three years as a product lead at Autodesk, where you launched a location service platform for global wireless carriers and a developer ecosystem for GIS application. Would you mind sharing a couple of the high-level product challenges associated with these projects? Sure. And just to put it in simplest terms, this is a platform that delivered location-based services, so tracking where your cell phone is, so you get driving directions and find friends and play games. It's been very common today. But this is in the early days when one of the big challenges was 
working with wireless carriers that they would enable this platform and then help them communicate to their users like why it's important and helpful to share your location and not a violation of privacy. So there's a lot of, of a product perspective, not so much features and things, but more uh, helping to paint the picture of the vision and evangelize why location services was so important and why the end user would be willing to share the location. Today, we take that for granted, but back then it was a big high-risk decision in the eyes of these carriers. So that was a challenge. And then secondly, it was also interesting because iOS and Android weren't around yet. So there were all these different mobile OSs like Brew and J2ME from different companies supporting this, this range of hardware was very complex. And it just spoke to me to, to have to find a way to make the user experience as simple as possible, whether you're on a you're doing a text-based uh, workflow or you know, a web browser and a downloadable app. For me, that was this great experience, exercising a lot of muscles in UX design, thinking through like the simplest way to solve a problem for the end user, no matter what device they're on. Yeah, so painting the picture, the vision of the product for some of the bigger enterprise customer, and then learning a lot about the power user experience and user interface, right? Not just engineering work as well. So those are the two things that you basically add on into your prior knowledge of building good products besides the engineering capabilities that you already have. Exactly. And I think it helped me appreciate much more the art of product management of like what problem are you solving for whom and and how how do you fit into their life, you know, their kind of their daily life. And so that was uh, it was very formative to do that, you know, earlier on in my career. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing those lessons. After Autodesk, you actually went back to school and earned your MBA from Harvard Business School. So back to Massachusetts again. And you also actually did a summer internship at Apple. How was your overall MBA experience at Harvard? Yeah, you know, I, I loved it. And I had not planned to go to business school earlier in my career as an engineer. I'm like, oh my gosh, like who are these MBA people? They deal with those fuzzy stuff. I don't, you know, like who would want to do that? Uh, but over time, I, I began to appreciate some of the, the skills I observed and people who happened to have gone to business school around just communication and leadership and uh, understanding a more holistic point of view, you know, in, in solving problems. I found about half the value at HBS was in the classroom experience. You know, just looking at lots of examples of different businesses and different situations and discussing them with smart people. Uh, and the other half of the value just being around all these amazing people from different backgrounds and different places of the world, different industries, and comparing notes and just getting a crash course on how a lot of the world worked that I had not seen in Silicon Valley. And that was just also like, you know, personally satisfying to meet a lot of new people and be able to, yeah, just uh, see the world through different eyes. And I continue to, to work closely with people from that time as we've all gone on to do interesting things in the world. Yeah. I'm curious, was there any particular classes or even experience from that MBA that was like really transformative for you, given where you're coming from a more technical background? Yeah, I think it's ironic, right? Like leadership classes, you know, what can you learn from a class? You know, leadings like when people follow you rather than, you know, some kind of set of principles. But I, I will say, um, I think some of the these examples of leadership at HBS through the various case studies, and there was a class called LEAD, but just more broadly, I appreciate the different styles of leadership. And mm -hmm. I think looking at my own career trajectory and embracing my own style versus feeling I have to be like someone else's because I saw... You know, there seems to be a path to success with that style, but ultimately you, you've got to develop your own sense of who you are and what it is that you can do to help people move forward and bring them with you and, and lead. And that was kind of more than meta learning mm -hmm. through all those 
leadership kind of examples that we talked about in business school. I see. Yeah, embrace your own leadership style, and instead of like you know by following other examples. And I make an extra point of this because there's so much glorification, especially in Silicon Valley, of like you know kind of the magical founder or you know this super glamorous leader, and you know a lot of those always aren't lasting or durable examples of leadership. Right. So I think it just goes to show like there's a lot more to it than perhaps what we see is the kind of the poster children for building and leading companies. Makes all sense. And we'll talk a bit about that notion of leading later on in our conversation, given some of your background or working with a lot of founders and now starting your own company as well. But kind of circling back into your career trajectory, after business school, you spent about three years at Google. Initially, leading the sales operation team in AdWords under Charles Sember, and then as a product manager building YouTube's monetization system. What could you say are some of your proudest accomplishments during your first stint at Google? Yeah, speaking about leadership and teams, the thing I'm most excited about, you know, first part of Google was I led a team called the product specialists, served as the voice of the customer and product development process. So they work closely with product managers and, and engineering teams to kind of help us build the right product and help users be successful with it. And we, we had a great culture on that team. And I am excited to say a lot of the people from that team have gone on to do amazing things. They've become directors or VPs at Google or at places like Instacart or, or Productive, you know, other great software companies. That was just a really uh, wonderful time to work with people who were very driven, you know, very talented, wanted to do the right thing and have gone on to have great careers. So that's something that I feel really good about from the time at Google. Besides the culture and organizational learnings, in terms of the actual product work itself, did you recall any specific learning about product management specifically from the Google style that has been very beneficial for you? Yeah, yeah one example on the product side that I'm proud of is, is building the sponsorship marketplace at YouTube, which is one of the early platforms basically that enable a brand to be able to find brand-safe content on YouTube to advertise against. And so this is one of the key issues we had to solve at YouTube in the early days. Of, you know, if Nike wanted to put their ad against the video, they wanted to make sure the video didn't do anything that would be, you know, uh, dangerous for their brand, right? Like it'd be um, content that would be, it wouldn't be somebody smoking a cigarette at the end of the video. <laughs> uh, and at the time, it was hard to find an automatic way to do that, right? Because, you know, how can you look over hours of, of this user-generated content? And, you know, we had done some early experiments with different tools and, you know, early days of kind of computer vision to be able to do that. Now it'd be great to apply something like masterful you know, AI to automatically understand the video. But back then it was, you know, how do we look at what's the uh, 2010 rule? Can we find at least a little bit of content that would be brand safe just to get the Nikes, to get the NBAs and so on, to run a couple of campaigns and then, uh, you know, show results and then bootstrap it into uh, you know, broader campaigns and automate it along the way. It's kind of like you Flintstone it. You first do it very manually, like Fred Flintstone, you know, running with his feet under the car. And then over time, you know, we start building a real engine to be able to scale it. But you, you kind of get at least some momentum and some validation with, with the end user or end customer um, if you can Flintstone in the beginning days. I see. So starting out with like more the different manual effort and then like incrementally automate a lot of this solution. So eventually it come into a repeatable playbook to work with the marketplace users and, and clients as the number of requests in right? Thanks for sharing that context. And I suppose it must be very exciting to work in the early days of YouTube and figure out like all these 
product-related problems during that time as well. After your time at Google, you actually found a social commerce startup called Renal Labs, which built a product and deals recommendation engine integrated with major social networks. So yeah, out of curiosity, what lesson have you learned being a first-time founder? Yeah, I think I learned that when you're a first-time founder, you know, you've got everything to prove to customers. <laughs> Coming out of Google, where there's like a given, there's a momentum, there's a nameplate, there's access. If Google or some other big company, right, any of any of those sorts of companies do something, there's already a willing audience and, and trust and so on. And so as a first-time founder, I, I thought it was a great trial by fire to have to like be the front line talking to a skeptical customer or user and be able to get them excited. So um, I remember talking to one sales prospect and he had sent me some questions and I had taken two days to get back to him. And then I got him on the phone and he's like, hey man, like, you know, taking two days to reply to me is like, you know, it's not good enough. Like, you're lucky I'd take this call with you. (laughs) So, you know, it's just uh, that kind of bar. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, there's no uh, forgiveness when you're trying to prove yourself. And that was a good lesson to learn early on as well. Right. When you're uh, building something new, it's all about finding people who believe in you and everyone's going to have a high bar to start with. You have no goodwill. It starts at zero. Yeah, I see that. And also, like, why did you decide to start a company? What sparked the motivation? I had always been looking for the right to go build something. I had seen a number of experiences from the things we talked about being an engineer and being product manager, leading a team. And I'm like, I'd love to be able to integrate these and, and really build something from scratch that I thought was meaningful just to have more like right where the rubber hits the road, you know, be involved with all those aspects. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I saw an opportunity where like kind of social media was this kind of building wave. And I'd, I'd seen it from the, through the lens of, of YouTube and video specifically, but it, around this time in you know, 2009, 2010 is when, you know, social networks are becoming more interesting for marketing purposes, like more broadly, like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And so I, I thought this would be a great time to build a, company and a product which would help connect you know users with you know all these brands are coming online in social networks and first i thought it would be helpful for a, a, from a commerce point of view to help people find the best kind of deals what they're looking to buy but then i later found that it was too early people weren't really buying through social networks but it was really just marketing helping brands build an audience and engaging that audience which was right it was a great opportunity at the time and that's what helped me get connected and eventually join up with Wildfire, which mm-hmm. was a startup that was focusing on the marketing versus on the, the kind of the commerce side of things. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You see that opportunity and then iterate to a different version of product and then understanding the dynamics of supply demand and then eventually led you on to the next phase of your career. So you mentioned a bit of Wildfire and you, know, you were the director of product management there for, I would say, about two and a half years. I was doing some research on a company before for the post of conversation, and apparently it was named one of the top 10 places to work in the Bay Area in 2011 and 2012. So supposedly it's a pretty good startup to work at the time. I mean, could you mind working over this phase of your career? Yeah, I felt really fortunate to be part of Wildfire. It was a really great team and culture. And I talked a bit about why I joined up with them. And we scaled it from you know 10 people to 450 people. You know, in a little over two years. So it was a really great hypergrowth experience for me where we were at the time uh, one of the fastest growing SaaS companies ever. And you know, we opened seven global offices. We added some pretty sophisticated product features around analytics and 
so this is something that it was, you know, a lot of the fundamentals that I brought to later being a VC and being an entrepreneur was like seeing, you know, what it takes to scale something mm-hmm. and, you know, do it quickly and maintain a great culture and make it a place where people were empowered to experiment and try new things while moving quickly and, you know, learning quickly. That was one of these experiences, which is just rare, you know, rarely companies can grow that fast and not go off the rails. Going from 10 people to 150 people and then later got acquired by Google. So I'm curious, was there any principles that you recall about that scaling journey? Was there any principle you found that very relevant for startups that are going through that sort of high growth procedure? Yeah, I think it was really a culture of empowerment and you know, allowing people who are sometimes very junior and they're curious just to like take on roles they could step in and start leading. And you know, we had a, a sales ops team, which you know, people who were kind of mostly you know, had been in sales and then they wanted to do something a little bit more technical. So they started you know, building some tools to help their other you know, fellow salespeople do things more quickly, you know, kind of coding up, you know, some simple web pages and, and tools. This is before there was a lot of like sales ops tools that have become, you know, big SaaS companies. So it was amazing to see people who were just like, hey, I see a better way of solving this problem and helping to like track the progress of deals better. And, and these people would say, you know, at night in the office and code up these tools and then like share it with their team. And suddenly the team would be using it and everybody would be like raving about this new tool. So it was someone who wasn't, wasn't their job description to think about improving like, you know, the process or even learning how to code, mm-hmm. but they saw that they could do it and people would embrace it. And, you know, that's just one example of other, you know, among others of people who just, it was like this emergent behavior, emergent culture of like, let's try it. And if it works, you know, it's a meritocracy, people will, will be able to benefit from it. And that was something that I think also enabled a lot of people in that company to grow their careers, you know, and have more opportunity than they would have otherwise. Culture enabling the setting where people are willing to try out function that have not been exposed to before. Yeah, there's another example is like in terms of the kind of culture hacking is we had moved into a new office and someone got the idea, how about we, you know, decorate you know, every room in, in the company with like, you know, like someone's apartment, you know, like someone's original apartment, like the found, you know, the kind of like the founder's apartment and then like kind of someone's apartment, dorm room and all this stuff. And so that was the theme. Like we had, it was kind of like a little Airbnbs almost or whatever, you know, each room had a very different vibe and theme and was mm-hmm. tied to someone's experience. And that was also something that was fun and like help people bring their full selves to work. And that was just emergent. I, you know, so people just thought of that and wasn't any kind of person directing it from on high. That's another example that always stuck with me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing a little bit about the culture side of the startup as well. Up to your time at Wi-Fi, in late 2012, you joined the enterprise investment team at Assistant Z as a partner, where you focused on enterprise application, AI and ML, and frontier technology. So how did this opportunity come about and specifically like what motivated you to make the career transition from tech operating into venture investing? Yeah, and this was after Wildfire had been acquired by Google. So I had Boomerang back to Google and working there, helping to integrate Wildfire into some of the core Google ads products. And I got a call from Idris and said, hey, we are looking for someone to join the enterprise investing team and come across you and you know, we're excited to talk. So it was really serendipitous and yeah, it's fortunate it worked out as a great fit. And there I was focusing on enterprise applications and also you know, AI ML and frontier tech, which is new things like drones and 3D printing and so on. So it was a great 
kind of broad swim lane, you know, to be able to look at new kind of the new, new thing as in addition to kind of core enterprise and uh, was able to learn a lot. You know, I was working with you know, all the great people there. Similar to my point about business school, it's kind of another like great concentrated, like super high bandwidth opportunity to learn things that I've gravitated toward in my career. I see. During this transition into investing, was there any, you know, learning curves that you had to go through, right? Because, I mean, you being an investor will be very different from being an operator. Was there any particular things that you've done early in your first couple of months at Eskinzi that have been proven to be useful for your turnout there? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, maybe the harder things to adjust to as an investor, which is taking a much longer time frame, you know, view of kind of what is this company going to look like three to five years or even you know, five to 10 years? How is this team going to scale, uh, not just like in terms of size, but also just ability and be able to think in new ways, right? Because every company, you know, at the seed stage, it's like, it's almost like a brand new company at the A, and then it's a brand new company at the B with different challenges. And just seeing that journey, partly through my own experience, having been a kind of founder and then going through like scaling at wildfire and seeing like an existing big platform like Google. You know, starting at it, and recently I got to start connecting the dots. Well, how do you get to those stages? What's the in-between? You know, what are the ramps between those different points? And just looking at it from that yeah, multi-year point perspective and directionally, what are the structural things that are going to either help or hurt a company was one of those kind of lessons I had to learn up front. Because investing is a much longer time frame than typically like kind of operating role projects or year-to-year sort of goals. Yeah, thinking in long-term and have a five, 10-year vision for how the startup may look like. In use as an evaluation criteria for investing in the startup, right? And in particular, you know, during your time at XNZ, I came across this article that you written discussing the rise of the enterprise hacker. And this is dated back in December 2013, right? So yeah, like talking about thinking sort of long-term, like how have you seen your prediction about enterprise hacking play out in those subsequent years since then? Yeah, it's funny. Even as of last week, I saw like funding announcements for companies that are kind of doing these sorts of things. But the thesis was uh, similar to what I saw at Wildfire. I mean, it's helped stimulate this kind of perspective is people who are not technical, right? Who are just like, hey, I gotta get something done. Hey, I'm trying, I'm a marketing person. I'm trying to figure out like, I'm trying to get some data on like which changes to my website are helping or hurting, right? And, you know, later on there was companies like Optimizely, right? Which enabled, you know, non-engineering person to run different tests, right? And I invested in Optimizely at Andreessen. So yeah, I think this idea of empowering someone in, you call generally speaking in operations, you know, sales, marketing, also, if you expand this to like finance and other kind of GNA functions, giving them power tools to um, execute without having to learn how to code or relying on an engineering team. So this is from companies like Zapier, which have been around for a while, which have just allowed you to plug and play different in you know, the output of one application into the input of another. There's a host of companies that are doing this now, and I'm excited because I think it does enable again people to develop new skills and realize their vision, you know, inside of a company yeah. in a really fast and, and exciting way. Yeah. So really it is the software that enabled the less technical division of a company to perform their work with more efficiency and better impact. Yeah. And also it's not just making a workflow for what's there, but I, I call it like the enterprise hacker because it's kind of like, you know, how do you hack around like the bottleneck? How do you break processes maybe or workflows to say, hey, this isn't working. Like let's, now we can re-envision it with a better, you know, in a, in a new way because we can kind of automate something or otherwise take out some like 
you know, manual bullshit step and, and replace it with a real, real intelligence, real data you know, driving a decision. It's not just the steps, it's also like the decisioning and the data that drive the decisioning that people can really tap into when they can build a tool instead of just, you know, a, a document or a person knowing how to do something in their head. Yeah, thanks for providing a lot about that context and what come across from that investment idea. You spent about two years at Shinzi, and then in late 2014, you joined Nextwork Capital as a partner, leading investment across enterprise application, the Internet of Things, and AI. What about Nextwork Capital stage and sector focus that attracted you to join the firm? Yeah, and I was really excited to be an entrepreneur in, in a sense wearing a VC hat. Nextwork Capital was a new firm, and you know it's kind of in place, but ready to grow. And so it felt like an opportunity to be an entrepreneur and you know build not just the portfolio, but also the team and the platform. And it was a firm specializing in enterprise and also looking into how do we get involved more with AIML and new frontier tech. And so it was an opportunity to go and shape you know something where Andreessen was awesome and also very established, right? They're doing great and just kind of uh, an extra world appeal to my um, ability to build and grow more from the early days. And the firm also focused on how do you really service entrepreneurs well? I really learned a lot about that and appreciated that from being at Andreessen, you know, which kind of pioneered this model of you know, value-added services for entrepreneurs. So NextWorld also had aspirations to build or to further the platform they had, which helped companies expand into new markets, in particular internationally, to help them scale. And you know, having worked at Autodesk, working with like wireless carriers around the world, I also saw how big those opportunities could be once you leave you know, the U.S. and can get into other markets, mm-hmm. but also how complex they could be. And so I had a, you know, unique take on it from the operating experience. Gotcha. I believe that Next World Capital kind of focused on that, you know, expansion from the U.S. market to like the European region, right? Where there's this, uh, it's one of the largest market opportunity there. And then the focus also a little bit on like the growth stage to be in the zero, if I'm correct. It was the transition period from like post-product market fit into really starting to scale. And so- yeah. For me, having you know been in product, but also in go-to-market functions at places like Google, where I you know could see like how do you take a product that's working, but then scale it out into with your current customers and also into new markets. So that was a great fit for Next World, who you know, was focused on that stage of what we call it a growth stage, but kind of more of that beginning to scale and uh, build kind of repeatable, scalable model and product and team. Yep. Thanks for providing the context. Let's talk a little bit about some of the investment thesis that you formed during the time of Next World. I came across this article on TechCrunch that you wrote back in 2015, in which you argue that the big enterprise opportunity could be to address the field office and the deskless worker. How did you formulate this investment thesis? Yeah, this goes back to uh, what I was sharing about where I grew up, a small town, and I was excited to now in Silicon Valley, see how can I help people who are working with their hands? So my family, there was you know, a lot of businesses where people were working with their hands. There was Rikert's Auto Body, Rikert's Appliances, you know, Heather's Childcare Place. And I felt a lot of these small businesses and, and people who are like kind of the deskless worker weren't benefiting from a lot of the technology innovations, helping people who work in offices. And so the interesting trend at the time was the Internet of Things was taking hold, which could start to digitize the physical world and be able to provide an opportunity, right, to give the deskless workers some tools to do their job better. So that was what got me excited. And one example, and you know, this is 
was early then has come to play out in real life is, you know, what if you had like drones that could look down on a construction site, right? And be able to give in- intelligence insights into like how efficiently are materials being moved around and are people wearing their safety helmet and safety vest. And now that's possible, right? Like you can have a camera pointing at a construction site and digitize what's happening there and do analytics and help it run better and more efficiently. That was what got me excited about this kind of opportunity in the field versus just in the office. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. In that article, you did mention a little bit towards the end, you said that there must be a need for new developer tools, data science platform, and network management application be created, right, to address some of these unique challenges with the field office and leverage the extreme velocity, volume, and variety of data stream generated by the interaction between IoT and desktop worker. And that can be relevant for your focus also during your time at Next World on artificial intelligence. And you actually have written a variety of articles talking about this from the inevitability of AI automation to the four different modes of AI startups to the opportunities for AI augmentation. So during this period, what have been the typical mental checklist you used to evaluate investment opportunities in enterprise AI? Yeah, you know, depending on the opportunity, there's kind of different things you focus on, but I'll just throw a couple of examples. I think one of the things I looked for was you know, this application of AI is it augment or replace workers? Right. Because I think in terms of building a, a business, right, like being able to help people do the job they're doing better is important and, and a great way to get started, right, to kind of get your product to market versus setting a much higher bar to kind of fully automate something or you know, kind of replace a person entirely. And so I looked at it as how do I help someone do their job better? And, you know, one example would be, you know, say uh, a state farm agents using a, they're used to climbing up on roofs to inspect the quality of a roof, right? This is an important like, insurance use case. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the folks are, uh, you know, used to climbing on roofs, but that doesn't mean they want to. It's pretty dangerous. They can fall and they do fall and get hurt. Instead of replacing their job, I say, well, we'll just send a drone and the drone will do it all automatically. You know, instead it's about, well, how do you give that worker like a better tool? You know, like give them a drone, teach them how to use it, make it an opportunity for them to use new technology to do their job more safely, more efficiently, right? They can fly the drone and get the data, get higher quality data. They don't have to put themselves at risk and they're learning a new skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the kind of using the tool to analyze the data after it's been collected. You know, that seemed like a more exciting opportunity. And the bigger kind of issue is like, how do you create opportunity for people, right? In, in businesses, and that's where you can get into uh, a virtuous cycle by giving people better tools and they can do their job better and versus trying to, hit the friction of trying to replace someone in, in the high bar of you know, getting a product to work well enough, fully automated. So that was one of the dynamics that I, I looked for, that kind of augment instead of replace. Yeah, augmentation instead of replacement. I think in, another example is uh, I looked for companies where they would they'd sidestep having to do any legacy infrastructure integration, right? Like if you have some kind of new tool or system, like can you avoid having to like rip and replace and change all the stuff that's already deployed? Instead, sit adjacent to it. And that was something that I looked at companies that were, say, selling software to the energy industry, (laughs) kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, utilities and so on. Like, you don't want to have to tell the big old company to change things. You want to say, here's a new tool you can just use, you know, independently. And so that was something else that I looked at, particularly around like kind of data and analytics tools, Mm -hmm. where you can build a a new stack, you know, a new pane of glass with new insights that didn't have to interact with the old screen with all sorts of old systems. That was another kind of principle I saw that was helpful. I see. 
there's usually sort of workflow position, right? Where does that new tool sit in terms of the existing software stack of their clients, right? And I suppose here, like if you try to sell your product to bigger enterprise, you know, with legacy infrastructure, it's going to be extremely difficult to convince them to abandon the existing tools. To so people become very, very passionate to yeah. how they do things in their workflow, especially in bigger enterprises. So to the extent that you give them something new and helpful versus uh, having them have to change <laughs> what they already know and love, you know, that you're going to find a lot more receptivity and grow your company faster if you can provide a new thing, which is uh, more standalone in those early days. Yeah. Thanks for providing that context. So you spend, I would say about five years at Nexco Capital and since November, 2019, you've been the co-founder and CEO of Masterful AI, whose mission is to bring the power and efficiency of modern software development to machine learning. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Sure. So one of the things I had doing as a VC was working and investing with companies that were building machine learning models, computer vision models specifically, both in the drone space and also in mapping and self-driving cars. And I kept seeing a, a problem, right? It was a much harder task to get these models to work in production. Once you took them out of the lab, you know, they would you try them in the real world and they just break, right? They're never accurate enough and it took a ton of training data and, and labeling and experimentation. So I've been seeing that as a, as a VC and, you know, just tracking kind of the development of machine learning. And, and my two co-founders who, you know, we've known each other for many years, you know, regularly were comparing notes. And one of my co-founders, Sam, had been a part of the Google AI research team. And he was seeing similar, like just giant inefficiencies and problems and experimentation cycles and inside of Google. And, and Yosh had been building deep learning projects on his own. And he's basically a software engineer who had come back and was picking up deep learning and seeing how, man, this is like so hokey compared to how software engineering ought to be. And so we realized that building machine learning models is, shouldn't be about running experiments. It should be about writing code and like shipping products. Mm-hmm. And, and we started to think, what were the big blockers that made machine learning development so different from software development? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we designed a product that we would want to use ourselves and then started talking to lots of folks in you know, various companies to say, hey, like, you know, is this something that resonates with you? And and that got us excited from the positive feedback we heard to go out and build it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context a little bit. Both your co-founders have like experience working at like very high level ML infrastructure at Google. And that's why it's a synergy in terms of understanding the problem statement and that sort of sit the idea for starting Masterfulware, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're all former Googlers and had, you know, been seeing like through both the experience from Google, you know, kind of which is a very product-centric company, but also other experiences we've had were all, you know, pre-seasoned people. We just saw this, you know, this kind of broad, grander view of like, yeah, what's ML development versus software development? How ought it to be better? Absolutely. And then another note on the company, only until November 2021 that you actually announcing Masterful to the world. So that was like a two-year between the initial inception of the idea to like actually having a product that is ready to be launched. Yeah, I'm curious between those sort of two-year period, what was some of the main focus that your team had done to build this initial product? Yeah, so we went through a phase. We intentionally stayed in stealth because we were talking to lots of design partners, you know, and wanted to build a platform, right? Like we felt there was value in building a more of a unified platform than just a more simple tool, mm-hmm. which, you know, for us was 
a recognition that you know machine learning like these problems we wanted to solve it wasn't just like one specific oh just do this it was really a system issues right of like you needed the right training data but then you needed in the status quo to experiment with the training data so how do you combine those things where the data and the experimentation cycles compressed and automated mm-hmm. and so um we also saw this as a way to make sure our platform was not a something that required tuning and customization and would only work for certain kinds of data. We really wanted to test it so we would know it would work on any kind of image data or video data that you gave it. So we could go to any ML developer, whether they be focusing on medical images or you know, satellite imagery and say, hey, you know, Masterful will work. We you know, made that investment upfront to make sure that the platform was complete enough and also that we had tested it enough and when we were ready, we would you know, make it available to everyone, which is what we did. That's kind of where we've now made it something that anybody can install and get using in minutes. I see. So yes, Posto, initial two years was really having a lot of conversation with practitioners from a variety of industry to understand the unique requirement from them and then bring the inside together and then start developing the products to make it general purpose enough right, and robust to different requirement and only that up to you know making those initial investments that you feel like it's ready to launch to the world so in that announcement blog post you said that the masterful auto ml platform reduced data labeling and shortened the time to achieve a great model yeah so let's sort of unpack the technical aspect of the masterful product first of all would you mind unpacking the major inefficiencies of machine development and then secondly can you explain how the platform works at a high level Sure. So, and we focus on computer vision. So one of the most important elements is having the right training data to be able to build a model for it. This could be for classification or detection or segmentation. You know, these are kind of the classic computer vision tasks. So one of the biggest blockers is getting labeled data, but you need a lot of it. And the, the way it's done today is there's armies of humans, right, who are labeling data and bringing both their understanding of the world, but also their biases and kind of errors to that labeling process. And so we looked at it as that's expensive. It's time consuming. You have to wait weeks to get labeling turned around. You have to double check that it was done correctly. Some of our customers even said, yeah, we have to have multiple labelers go through the same data just to make sure we can trust it. So our point of view, and, and this is where there's been a lot of innovation recently, is what if you could use unlabeled data and skip that part or greatly reduce it? And that's where recently there's been the emergence of semi-supervised learning, you know, which is a field of research, which is like, hey, if you can group similar looking images together and just you know, be able to assign a label to the group, you can greatly reduce the amount of hand labeling. So this is something that we saw as an opportunity to say, hey, what if you could label just a tenth of the data that you label today, instead be able to take the mass volumes of data you're probably collecting and just like pipe it right directly into your training loop. And that'll be one giving you a higher, you know, more accurate model because it's seeing more, the model can see more nuances in the world, put in a lot more data and also reduce the cost and time to label. So you can iterate more quickly, you know, and build a model, which, and it gets back to our mission of making this more like software engineering instead of you know, some kind of experimental loop. So that's one of the big inefficiencies is the labeling. And secondly, it's, you know, the experimentation of having to try different training parameters and hyperparameters, things like the learning rate, the batch size, that if you get them wrong, if your model may not converge, and then you're going to do the whole loop again. 
Mm-hmm. And these are things that we saw as you know acute issues for a lot of ML developers. And you know we have built the solution as an easy to use API, which you could pass in some labeled data, and then any unlabeled data you have, and then get out a trained you know high performance model from Masterful. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. Really addressing the two challenges of you know working with unlabeled data to get meaningful performance as well as perform tools to make the process of experimentation less cumbersome for ML engineers, right? Now, looking forward to some of the upcoming product roadmap of Masterful, what product initiatives are you most excited about? Yeah, I think we've talked about you know building models and efficiencies, right? Like, I think the opportunity I'm seeing and I'm really excited about for you know, our next step is helping to maintain models at scale, right? Because I talk to many developers who say, you know, I have to babysit all my models I've launched into production. It's like keeping all these plates spinning because the performance degrades as there's model drift, you know, as the model sees new data in the real world it hasn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we see companies, you know, developing eventually tens or hundreds of models that they put into production. And so Masterful will be the platform to automatically retrain and help improve their performance over time. Part of the advantage is that we can use unlabeled data. So it, there's a loop from data the model seeing in production mm-hmm. back to automatically retraining that doesn't involve you know, having to get many people involved to look at the data, to label it, and to QA it, and so on. So that's something that I think is going to where the world is quickly moving, which is past the initial implementation and trial phase for ML, but to having you know, models in production all the time and having to make sure that they meet a critical bar of performance. And this is good. That means that the sector is starting to mature. And mm-hmm. that's where we're all headed, headed. Yeah, maintaining models at scale in production and to help your end users deal with those scalability requirements, right? And I'll be sure to include the documentation and relevant content about masterful product into the show notes. So yeah, listeners can have a chance to take a look and learn more about some of the details that Tom just mentioned. And just quick note on this, because you have a background in computer vision research back in the late 1990s, and 20 years later, you work on vision again. And obviously, there's a lot of things change, right, in terms of like how the field progress. Was there anything that stood the test of time that you felt like, you know, what you learned in vision back in those days that surprisingly still relevant, even in the era of large model and deep learning these days? Yeah, I think at the time, neural networks you know, were something that I was using and that was seen as a path, right, to building more robust kind of generalizable models, which has proven true, right? And I think the difference is the amount of data available to train them, the amount of compute power to train them, and then the, the ability to then deploy these models into the real world with, you know, on mobile devices or you know, in the cloud where they can see more data to keep improving. Those are the things that are different. So I feel a lot of the fundamentals haven't really changed. And I think you know, there's some people say, yeah, like there hasn't been anything really new in AI in decades. There's been, you know, kind of enhancements rather than necessarily like a fundamental new approach, envision at least. So yeah, I think it's more of appreciation I have of the data that you need, you know, like and the sensitivity to how well a machine learning system will work to that data. And those are principles and lessons that have served me well, you know, whether it's you know, kind of in the earlier days of some of these machine learning techniques or, or today. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So let's take off your 
product hat and put on your CEO hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Masterful AI's mission? Yeah, I think for me, we haven't talked about this yet, but it's kind of the why behind Masterful. And, you know, I think of the world as like uh, this very unique inflection point, right? Where we're starting to trust machines to do these very important things, you know, to drive our cars, to diagnose medical images and so on. So it's so important to make these machines, you know, fair and accurate and trustworthy. And so I believe Masterful is like the company to do that, to help make it easy to build these models and to put them in the world and to make sure they, they are accurate and trustworthy and they stay that way. Mm-hmm. It's, I look to, you know, in our interview process to find people who also have a missional view, right? Who believe, you know, AI is going to make the world a better place, you know, because we'll be able to do things better as, you know, as, as society. And so partly it's like, what is their why behind being in the AI field? And I've been doing this a long time. This is a consistent... <laughs> authentic passion and interest and but there's a lot of people who are just getting into it more recently who are like oh maybe it's a cool new thing right or this is just a, a great mm-hmm. career path nothing wrong with that but i i prefer more of a missional than a mercenary sort of you know, reason to do something and so partly it's looking for people who, yeah are like yeah i believe that the future will be better with more machine learning models out there and then secondly you know, people who are really curious right because i think building a startup is hard it's a lot of persistence and so people who are curious and say like you know i don't know the answer to that i'm humble enough to admit it and i'm also like really committed to like finding the answer or like pursuing you know something that's perhaps it's not clear what the steps one two and three are but they're just like i'm just keep plugging away and like crawling over glass to get to the answer yeah that's also something that's really important you know to us as a, a company and also to me as a founder you know getting people who are going to help you know further mm-hmm shape the culture as we hire and grow over time yeah yeah so really looking for folks with missionary rather than missionary mindset as well as the sort of curiosity engine for diving into new things and wearing multiple hats given the nascent stage of a startup and it's actually a pretty interesting point that tie back to your earlier point during your time at wi-fi i think if i recall correctly you mentioned about that culture enablement that enabled people to grow outside of their respective domain. And I'm, I assume that you kind of bring the same mental models during your work hiring here for Masterful. Yeah, I think the other aspect of that is uh, I look for people who are both humble and confident. Like people who like are in it for this bigger picture mission, but also confident, who are willing to take risks, you know, who are like, I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm going to go try to find it, you know, and have the courage to take that on and to take, you know, the ownership, say, yeah, like, I'm going to come up with new ideas to how to, work better, how to improve our culture rather than just wait and listen for someone else to tell me. We had that at Wildfire. And I think it's something that I've always seen as like a part of a really a healthy and high performance culture. Yeah. Humility and confidence. It's really a powerful combination. So finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. And you actually mentioned earlier, like during those two years, you have to talk with a lot of folks from from building industry. So what challenges have you overcome to find some of the early design panels across this various industry? Yeah, I think one of the things is finding teams who are, you know, hitting a real acute pain point. Because lots of people are, are curious about AI and experimenting with things. But I think for good design partners and early adopters, it's people who like, you know, hit a blocker, hit a brick wall, right? And, and I think what we would see is 
you know, someone who's already invested, you know, they built a model, but they can't launch it. The model's not accurate enough, right? And Or it's so expensive to continue moving progress forward, you know, because they need so much more labeling or more, you know, more, if the higher PhD researchers, like, and I put all this stuff into the bucket of, they haven't hit sufficient product quality. <laughs> you think kind of model accuracy is, is kind of product quality in the ML world. They can't launch. And so that's where they are open to, you know, like, okay, how do we find a new tool platform that will enable us to like break through this wall and like not hit it again, you know, as we build the next model and the next model. So that's one of the important filters, right, for finding people who are going to be, you know, good design partners who are facing a real problem. And also like similar to like the, the hiring points before, people who are curious and we should find a lot of design partners were just like, wow, we've heard of some of the techniques you're using. We're really curious to try those, but we weren't able to build it ourselves. Or we, you know, we're not sure how to combine those techniques. So it's mm-hmm. also made for someone who wanted to collaborate with us and therefore help us shape what capabilities we have, but also like be expert testers, you know, to be able to exercise those as part of our testing process. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, like this design partner, did you see any repeatable pattern in terms of the size, the stage of the ML teams and the maturity of the ML practices? Yeah, it's interesting. I wouldn't say on the outside, the companies all look the same. They're not all Fortune 500 or they're not all like early stage startups. Yeah. I think it's really about like finding companies where there's a, a KPI, like a business you know, KPI tied to their model performance. And so uh, in some cases, that's a division of a big company. In other cases, it's more of a kind of AI first company. But partly it's understanding who's there. Like if you can see, you know, are there developers in that company using TensorFlow and PyTorch, right? Like, you know, they're probably working on something related to deep learning that we can help with if they have, you know, an division and kind of video domain. So there are certain markers that make it clear there's the right developer audience and then understanding kind of what their use case is like you know, these cases are pretty repeatable right like you're looking for to classify something in it classify an image or detect an object in an image or you know do instance segmentation you know these are pretty consistent use cases yeah uh, you can help with yeah i think you mentioned a really important part there which is like that's a kpi tied in with the model performance right and so that can probably without like organization where ml is more of a research practice rather than at a production level yeah. We talk about dealing with employees, dealing with customers, and then another group that I definitely want to curious about to learn is dealing with investors. So Masterful has raised funding from a couple of investors like Homebrew, IA Ventures, and Fika Ventures. And this is probably hit the home for you, given your previous background. What fundraising advice could you give to fathers who are seeking the right investors for their startups? Yeah, I think getting different perspectives around the table is very important. And so I think each investor, you know, you, you may find fantastic investors and every investor is going to have a different view just based on who they are, you know, their particular experiences, their fund kind of thesis and fund dynamics. So it's great to have, a, you know, a few folks who are different. And also, I mean, a big believer in just kind of finding people of different backgrounds, you know, different places, different makeups, people who are different think different. So, you know, it's, it's helpful in that sense. And so uh, that's one. And secondly, like to deeply reference your investors, right? Like talk to the companies that have been in their portfolios that didn't work out Mm -hmm. into the wins, right? Because understanding an investor's character when times are tough, when things aren't working and how do they react and how do they help 
is something that is very revealing about someone's you know, character and true value add. And lastly, I'd say look for people who will you know, make you better, not just make you feel better. Mm. Right? Like look, look for people who will challenge you, who will give you hard, tough love, as well as you know, encourage you and help champion you and your company. You need both. You need people who, can, who have that dynamic range. And I think that's really important to look for. Yeah, I see. So look for investor who have a different background, who can offer a complementary perspective, looking for people who can stood the test of tough times, who stick with their portfolio companies, and also folks who are not hesitant to give you like critical feedback when things are not working. So those are the main, I guess, attributes, like we say, when fundraising, right? Yeah, and there's, there's other things like, you know, having a prepared mind and knowing your space and, you know, someone who you... Uh, you know, is someone who kind of gets kind of why you're doing it and believes in the mission. So uh, those are things too. But I also think it's more of um, yeah that kind of filter of like the hard moments. You know, when things are going well, you know, like VCs aren't around, right? So, you know, or, or if things are going really well, they're around. Or if things are going really bad, they're around. But sometimes it's good just to know people who they're there when you need you, and also they're know how to push and prod at the right times in a constructive way. All that to say, you know, every investor is different. You just got to find the right kind of portfolio yourself of people around to help you. Absolutely. Finally, reflecting on the arc of your professional identity thus far, what have been some of the surprising lessons you found during the transition from product management to venture capital to now being a CEO? In looking at the arc of my career, I you know, feel very fortunate I got to wear some different hats. And at this stage of my career, I'm excited to really like go deep and you know, kind of I've been able to put together different perspectives, but I, I I think it's you know, now the satisfaction of being focused and going deep and growing something over the long term. And so I think part of the takeaway is life is long, right? Like idea of Silicon Valley is so much about the, you know, what's new and what's changing and things that are on the rise or on the fall. But really, you know, if you start thinking about building a company that's going to be durable, building a legendary company, you know, it takes a decade or more, you know, like, Typically, you know, growing something to have truly, you know, true importance in the world is it takes time and persistence. So I think you see the rise and falls of companies, but I think the idea of an idea that is valuable, like eventually it will come out, right? Like when I was at Silicon Graphics, like a kind of early precursors to YouTube back in the day when that was too early, right? There was for a whole host of reasons, on the families and all this stuff. But eventually the idea of people like sharing video content and all this it was going to happen. Eventually it happened at YouTube, right? There's many steps along the way from different teams and different big companies and small companies. Mm. But good ideas eventually will happen. And you got to like figure out the timing to build a great company and have good financial returns doing that. So the timing does matter. But the ideas, you know, they're good ideas are lasting and don't give up, right? If you think something's truly good. And people will mix between different companies, between the big platform companies like Google and so on to startups, but you know, the, the name of the company on the door is not going to matter as much as like, what are you trying to build? What's your mission and what are you going to do? And eventually, you know, I think it's about sticking with it to realize the vision. And that's ultimately kind of what this is about, right? Trying to make yeah. the world a place with these tools and these new ways of doing things that we build here. Yeah. I think, you know, you have more than 20 years working at the Silicon Valley and seeing a lot of ups and downs trends and that notion of, Thinking long term and, and break the durability of ideas is very important. Uh, yeah, the concept of timing, I think, is very underrated, right, for a lot of people. Because not just success of a startup doesn't come just from the technical excellence 
all like, you know, sensible business model, but also like really market knit and how eventually Jopra are going to get contribute value to the end users. So I think that's a very interesting and important point to raise here. Just from a more meta level note, how do you like personally cultivate the practice of thinking long-term? Yeah, I think partly it's knowing um, what's important and what's not. <laughs> like there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of news we're inundated with every day. And so it's more about like, what matters? Like what problem are you trying to solve for who? Are you making progress? If not, like how do you adjust and change? You know, like these kinds of things are great to be thinking about a lot, you know, versus looking to your left and looking to your right and comparing yourself or, you know, whatever you're building to someone else or the latest tweet or news headline. Like that stuff can be a lot of like very low calorie junk food that your brain snacks on. Yeah. You know, it's got some immediate satisfaction or perhaps and other people are talking about it, but the really, you know, hearty meals are things that like, you kind of have to prepare them. You got to sit down, you got to eat it, you got to digest it. And yeah. then kind of fuels you for like the marathon the next day or, you know, the century ride the next day. So that's, that's one way I think about it. Yeah. I love the metaphor, basically like consumer high quality content diet. Right. Yes. Um, and talk about, you know, who you surround yourself with and what you talk about is part of that. You know, it's not just kind of what you read, but it's who you engage with and finding people who are also thinking more in that, you know, deep time versus kind of, what's happening like right now <laughs> you know how do we react to it versus drive things from a bigger perspective absolutely so tom at this point our conversation i want to move on to the final closing segment in which i'm asking you three rapid fire questions then you can provide quick answers for the listeners number one name one person in the ai community and one person in the venture capital community whose work you admire yeah in the ai community i really admire andrew Ng. i think he's been about the researcher and an amazing thought leader in deep learning. And also he's someone who's really helped to uh, promote like, how do we get AI into the hands of many people, right? Who are not PhD researchers through tools, through access to data, through things related to what we're building masterful AI. And I think that's you know, the right message. And he has really sought to create opportunity for people, even starting companies to help train people to become developers and use ML in new industries. So uh, he's someone who I admire in the DL AI world. In the venture community, Chris Dixon. I was very fortunate to work closely with Chris on some deals at Andreessen. He just had an incredible ability to apply first principles to really think through like, where's the world going and really distill that into a very key insight. He's genuinely curious and like, and he enjoys being with entrepreneurs and like, yeah, I think he's just got such a history of great things he's doing before the crypto craze, even not even the craze. He, he was working with startups as a seed investor and then one of the first people to understand kind of what the decentralized world could be. And he stuck through it, even through the winters. <laughs> yeah, I think he's one of those VCs who really has a remarkable talent in thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in Christensen also have a blog, right? He wrote a lot of evergreen content that resonates a lot with fathers and be sure to include it in the show notes as well. Number two, name one book you would recommend for people to cultivate better foresight. Yeah, so specifically through the lens of kind of the AI topic we're, we're covering here, like I think the book AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee is very interesting. He'd also been both the VC and operator in the AI world. And he talks about where the world is going, you know, and, and specifically about kind of China and entrepreneurship related to AI. But I think it's worth a read because he's 
also comparing two different approaches to entrepreneurship, kind of like the Silicon Valley approach to like how it's happening in China. In a lot of ways, like, you know, China is a very interesting advantage with just the amount of data they can access and also like this kind of this relentless focus on execution there and actually a, less of a worry about efficiency, but just raw like execution. And in a world where ideas are spreading more rapidly and you know, access to ideas is very easy and very rapid. You know, what's going to distinguish companies that change the world that might be increasingly more about execution than it is about, you know, being in a certain place or time. Uh, I think China is just a different model. It's worth understanding. Absolutely. Thanks for providing that context. And finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the investors turn early stage founders on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Never give up. I think as a VC, you know, you're looking at a portfolio, I think in some cases it's a desire to kind of like feed the winners and starve the losers. And, you know, you kind of think about your returns, which is what you need to do in that job. I think if VC has turned to a founder, it's about, you know, some days it's putting one foot in front of the other and just being aggressive and opportunistic, you know, to move the ball forward. And, you know, you are... You're playing the long game and you're also like having to move super fast every day. So I think that never give up and just be focused and relentless in driving things forward rather than, you know, forecasting, you know, what's going up and what's going down is the mind shift that I would put out there is a very important one to make if you're going from VC to entrepreneur. So really shifting that myself from sort of a zoom out big picture version into more like a micro moment, right? Looking at the day-to-day operation for startup execution. So Tom, I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning a bit about your background, doing research in AI and MIT in the early days, your career, working in engineering role at Silicon Graphics, product at Autodesk, product at Google, and Wi-Fi, Justin in venture investing at HTNZ and Nextwork Capital, as well as your current journey building a masterful AI as a training platform for computer vision. Various lessons and tactics related to product development, growth strategy, hiring, finding design partners, and fundraising. I'd be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes, because I'm sure a lot of people can learn a lot from some of this insight that you have cultivated throughout your 20 plus year working experience in Silicon Valley. So yeah, Tom, I really appreciate you spending time with me today discussing these highly intellectual topics, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, James. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.